I was thinking back there, I, we weren't supposed to have staff meeting this week, but I think I'm going to have to call one after Mike's slip up. I mean, brother, if you're going to slip up, at least go soup and steak. <laughs> soup and salad for crying out loud. Uh, and I go home hungry tonight. All right. <clears throat> well, it's a blessing to be here this morning, and this morning's different. This morning is the same in many ways. We come and we gather and we exalt and we worship our risen Savior this morning, but it's a special morning because it is our 17th anniversary, and so because of that, we're going to take a, a time, a step out of our study in Matthew and, and just consider, again, who we are as Grace Baptist Church. You know, some of you were, were with us when we gathered 17 years ago. You remember that, but many of you weren't. Some of you completely understand why when you leave today, there's going to be Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets in the back. Some of you have no idea. If you don't have an idea and you want to know, you need to come to the Grace Connect class. I'm not telling you that story today, but it would be a way you could learn. Some of you remember gathering on a cold night, worshiping in shop lights and setting up and breaking down chairs and gathering in small groups and doctor's offices along Bogle Street and some of you young people in here, or younger people, I should say, you're getting older. Welcome to our age. Remember gathering in a youth room in the basement of an old musty building that had a bidet that was broken and that would just blow your face off if you made the mistake of hitting the wrong button. You remember those things. A lot of you don't. A lot of you understand the significance of what just happened. The significance of children and adults gathering to sing unto the Lord. You understand why that's important to us. You understand why it's important that our worship team that gathers and sits up here every, uh, every morning on Sunday has everything from teenagers all the way up to um, older than teenagers, right? Because we value and prize an intergenerational church that sees young and old standing together shoulder to shoulder in worship and magnifying the Lord and in ministry and missions. You understand those things. But many of you may be visiting today or you may have just started coming to Grace and, and some of these things are different. Why would you have children up there and not a big production, a big show? Why would we have a worship team that's so diverse? Why would we sing what we sing? Why do we do what we do? Why do we preach and handle the Word the way we preach and handle the Word? I hope this morning will give you somewhat of a, a little glimpse at who we are as Grace Baptists. We can't cover everything, but I want to kind of kind of hit the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, and, and kind of remind us of who we are. And the best place to remind us of that is in Psalm 115. So I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 115. Many of you know that 115.1 is really the foundational verse in our heart cry as a church. It, it really drives and explains why we do what we do and, and what our driving focus is as a church. And so I want us this morning to return to a verse that for many of us is very familiar and for some of us, may be new and something we need to understand that we, which lies behind what we do here at Grace Baptist Church. I want to read the entire psalm this morning to you, Psalm 115. The word of the Lord says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory 
for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He's their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He's their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. You know, this psalm was a psalm of of triumph. It was a psalm of victory. It was used by the people as they they gathered and and observed Passover. And, And the theme is that in view of the false gods and the idols of the nations, our God reigns. He does whatever he pleases, and he alone is deserving of glory and praise. It is that first verse that that lies at the root of who we are as a church. It was the verse that that we we looked at and we prayed through as we began. That our desire, our longing was for the name of the Lord to be praised. Not the name of Grace Baptist, not the name of any member of Grace, not the name of any pastor of Grace. But that the name of Christ would be highly exalted in everything that we do. So I want to take a moment, let's, let's take kind of a, a broad sweeping view of the psalm and then we'll come back and look at, look at how this drives what we do. So that first verse there is really a theme statement. When you look at Psalm 115.1, it's kind of the, the statement of the theme, it's the, the declaration of, of praise, it's the summary of the psalm. So it's almost like a heading there, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. It's the desire that the name of the Lord will be praised and glorified above all others. Now, why? Why is the name of the Lord to be praised and glorified? Well, he gives us the answer there. In the the ESV, it says, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Other translations, like the New American Standard or the Christian Standard Version, both of them translate as because of. It's probably a little clearer understanding that we give him glory because of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That lies at the root, the basis for why the psalmist comes and why he exalts the Lord. It it lies at the root of why we as a church gather every week to declare the praises of our God as his steadfast love and his faithfulness. The steadfast love of God is the the good kindness of the Lord to his people. It's his, his gracious love that he shows his people. 
It's used often, not always, but often in the Old Testament. It's used to, to describe God's covenant love, his covenant commitment to his people. It is his good and gracious kindness. Faithfulness there, your, your, your translation, if you're not using the ESV, it may say truth. It can often be translated as truth. So the faithfulness of the Lord or the truth of the Lord. It's God's enduring consistency to be who he is and to do what he promises to do in truth. Now, these two characteristics of God are frequently paired in Scripture as a reason to praise him and a reason to exalt him. It's a pairing, the steadfast love and the faithfulness of, of the Lord, the steadfast love, the truth of the Lord. So in Genesis 24, 27, Abraham's servant praises God for his steadfast love and his faithfulness. In Exodus 34, 6, God reveals himself to Moses as one who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Psalm 61, 7, it's a prayer that the king would be cared for by God's steadfast love and in his faithfulness. Later in, in Proverbs 14, 22, we read that it's steadfast love and faithfulness that meets those who devise good, who, those who plan and carry out good. In Proverbs 16, 6, it's steadfast love and faithfulness that is said to atone for iniquity. And so we have great reason to praise the Lord for his steadfast love and faithfulness. The, the people of God historically throughout the Old Testament praised him for this because the people of God are special recipients of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We know it in a very close and a very dear and a very experiential, very real way. Grace Baptist, we know the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. We've seen it time and time and time again, have we not? We can count and, and relay stories. We do that often tonight as we gather for our anniversary meal and celebration at Thanksgiving. We, the, the conversation around tables so often is centered around that all that the Lord has done, whether it's in the history of our church or in our own lives and in the day, in the midst, we just gather and we celebrate all that God has done. We've seen his steadfast love and faithfulness. After that, that heading verse there, that theme, he, he comes in to, to chapter, or verses 2 and really down through 8, a contrast of the true God against the idols of the nations. And he starts by saying that the nations may ask, where is their God? They may skeptically ask this, where is your God? Where is he? Where is he now? Look at all that's going on. Where is he? Is he going to show up? Right? Is he here? They may skeptically ask that, but the people of God know what? We know where God is. We know that he reigns. We know that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Now, this is an important verse. When we think about Scripture, we think about the testimony of Scripture, we think about who we are as God's people, we think about us as a local body. This verse to say that our God is in the heaven, heavens, he does all that he pleases. Not some of what he pleases, not what he's able to do, but he does all that he pleases. It's not as though someone is up there going, you know what, you, uh, you can do that, but I'm not going to let you do this because God is subservient to someone. No, God reigns, he rules, he's sovereign, he's exalted, he rules over all things, and he does all that he pleases. It's a verse that demands a very high view of God. And we gather and we exalt the name of the Lord because we have a high view of God. 
We don't worship a weak God. We don't worship a God that we put on just on the back of a t-shirt and add to something. We don't worship a God who's bound by any. He has no rival. He's not limited by man's choices, ideas, or actions. He has no equal. He is absolutely able to do anything he pleases according to who he is. He is God. And we worship him and we exalt him as the church. This is why Isaiah, God reveals through Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord, Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. It's a clear statement. There is one true God and we worship him. Psalm 135, verses 5 to 6. For I know that the Lord is great and that our God, our Lord, is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Whatever he pleases, he does. In contrast to this, the nation's idols are weak, they're useless, they're products of man. But our God reigns and he rules and he does whatever he pleases. But he sets them in contrast to, or sets, sets the idols in contrast to the Lord there in verses 4 through 8. They're silver and gold. They have the features of a person, of a deity, but they can't do anything. They're simply products of man, the creations of man. They're helpless, they're useless, they're worthless, they're vain. And verse 8 is a sobering statement, a sobering statement. You need to understand if you're here and you're pursuing the ways of the world, you're pursuing the things of the world, you're giving yourself over to the stuff of the world, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in him. What is the end of your life? Where is it leading according to who you worship? Where is it leading? In verses 9 through 11, we have the psalmist calling us to trust the Lord. So in light of who God is, in contrast to the idols of the nations, he then calls us to then trust the Lord. Why? Why are we to trust the Lord? Well, it's because here he says he is our help and our Shield, oh Israel, trust the Lord, he's your help and shield. Oh Aaron, trust the Lord, he's your help and shield. All you who fear the Lord, trust the Lord. He is your help and your shield. When the Egyptians pursued the people of God and Moses, God was their help and shield. When Joshua led the people into the promised land, he was their help and their shield. When Gideon's army is reduced just to 300 men, do you remember this? God is their help and and their shield. When David runs headlong into battle against Goliath, God is his help and shield. When Saul seeks David's life, the Lord is David's help and shield. When three opposing armies surround on all sides, they surround Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat looks and he he makes that great prayer saying, I I don't know what we're going to do, but our eyes are on you. When they're surrounded and they know not what to do, it was God who was their help and their shield. Through every trial of life that the people of God encounter, God is our help and our shield. And believers, those of us who gather today and we exalt the name of the Lord, we trusted Christ. On that day when we meet our greatest foe, when we stand before the end and death awaits, God is our help and shield. He's our help and shield. Trust the Lord all you peoples. Trust the Lord. He goes on then to affirm the Lord's blessing. 
affirming the Lord's blessing. Verses 12 through 15, the Lord has remembered us. Isn't that a beautiful statement? The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. He will bless the Lord. Not only does God act on our behalf as a help and shield, but He blesses us. He remembers us, blesses us. The Lord helps those who are His. And we are to be assured of this, of the blessings of the Lord. And this doesn't mean a life full of ease, right? It doesn't mean that we're never going to have trials in life. It doesn't mean that we're going to avoid all troubles. However, what it does mean is that there is never a day that we fail to know the goodness and the mercy of our God. He blesses us in the fact that there is never a day in which we are lacking in the faithfulness of the Lord. There's never a day in which we are separated from His steadfast love. It was the great rejoicing of, of Paul in Romans 8 that there's nothing that can separate us from his love, that God is a covenant-keeping God, faithful to be who he is and to do what he says he does. Always, God is faithful. And so there's never a day that we do not know the blessing of the Lord. It doesn't mean we haven't had difficult days, does it? We've had plenty of them. I mean, if we just take a moment, think back in 17 years as a local body of believers, We've had plenty of difficult days, days that we would choose not to go back to, days we'd rather not in many ways even remember if we could avoid it. But in every one of those days, God was faithful. God was with us. God was pouring out His goodness to us. He was loving us through those days. His steadfast love and faithfulness was always there, always among us. The psalm concludes there in verses 16 to 18 in praise. He concludes the way he began, praising the Lord. That last verse there is a a statement of resolve. I love those in the psalms where in Psalm uh, verse 18 there, he says, we will bless the Lord. We will do it. We are going to bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. No matter what awaits, no matter what we travel through, no matter what life brings our way, we will bless and praise the Lord. Grace Baptist, that is our resounding cry. That no matter what awaits, no matter what the future looks like, no matter how difficult it is, we are going to bless the Lord. We are resolved that we will praise Him, we will worship Him from this time forth and forevermore. We will praise the Lord. We will praise the Lord. It's the theme of our song. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory for your faithfulness and your steadfast love. We worship our God. So the question I want to just spend the rest of our time considering this morning is this, is what does it look like for us to do that? How has that worked out? What does it look like for us to glorify the Lord? What does it look like in a very real and a very practical way for me to walk in and me to live my life as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a brother, in a way that says, I am going to magnify the name of Christ. I'm living for his glory and his glory alone. What does it look like for us as a corporate body to do that? 
What does that mean? Well, when we began, we articulated that with three simple statements. You see them on the wall out there. Three very simple statements that, that frame what it looks like and what our desire is and, and how we seek to glorify the Lord, to give Him glory and not our own name glory. Loving God, loving one another, reaching the world. Those three very simple statements. And I want us to, to think about that as we close. We're, I don't want to tease you. We're not closing that. We're, this isn't really a closing. This is midway, okay? I don't want you to be mad at me afterwards. But those three statements, loving God, loving one another, reaching the world, are statements that, that, that we have kind of built ministry around to flesh out what it looks like to glorify God. And that first one, loving God, is foundational. The clearest way to glorify God is to love God. Living for His glory issues forth from this supreme, a pervasive desire to love Him. If we love Him, we want to magnify Him. We want to glorify Him. The center of our worship, the center of our praise is the, the, the lifting high of Christ. And the love of God is clearly primary, is to be primary for God's people. We are a people who are characterized not just by God's love for us, but we should be characterized by our love for Him. And we love Him. Why? John told us we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. That's why we love. That's why we live in love with one another, for one another, showing one another love. It's why we love Him, we worship Him, because He has loved us. In the Old Testament, you know these passages. In the Old Testament, one of the most clear, defining statements of the people of God was the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does he do? You remember, many of you remember this? When he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Of all the commandments given in the Old Testament, in the law, what's the greatest? And it says, oh, it's the one you recite as a faithful Jew every morning. It's the one that is on your heart. It's you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The love of God that God's people have for Him is to be primary. It is to be foundational. It is to be the root of who we are. That we are a people who love the Lord. We praise the Lord. We love the Lord. Yet we live in a culture, right, that's constantly calling us to Love self and stuff. It's constantly encouraging you to love yourself more and more and more and more and more. It's constantly saying you need this stuff in your life and leading you to, to develop more and more stronger and stronger and stronger affections for the stuff. Right? We live in a, a church culture that's calling us to love these things. Celebrity preachers or maybe our, our brand as a church or even our particular theological niche or theological camp. You're to love these things and to stand on these things above all else. The Grace Baptist, we are those who gather and we love God supremely. We are those who gather to exalt the name of Christ and to do exactly what God called us to do, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind.
So we are not going to love self above all others. We're not going to love stuff above all else. We're not going to love our brand as Grace Baptist. We're not going to bow at the feet of a celebrity preacher. We're not going to die on our theological camp, so to speak. We're going to worship the Lord and love the Lord and exalt the Lord. This is why we gather every morning and from the time of the call to worship to the time of the benediction, it's not focused on elevating man's name. It's not focused on praising the name of any person. It's not focused on praising our nation or elevating our nation. Our time in here from beginning to end on a Sunday morning is focused on exalting the name of Jesus Christ, lifting high the name of our God and praising Him. Our goal is that every time we gather, we would focus on Him, we would worship Him, we would elevate Him, we would magnify Him. That our affections and longings for the Lord would increase as a result of our time here together. It drives what, the, what we sing It drives the the prayers we pray. It drives everything that we do in this moment is our love for the Lord. How do we increase our affections? How do we grow in our love for the Lord? How do we know Him more is through His Word. The Word is central to what we do here. Why? Because God has revealed Himself to us. He has made Himself known to us through His Word. And so we gather, and we gather for Bible studies, preaching, grace equipping, all those things are focused around the teaching and the proclamation of the Word. Why? Because that is how we grow in our affections and our longings and our desires for the Lord. It drives what we do. Because we don't want to grow your affections for us. Because I will fail you. All the pastors will fail you. We will disappoint you if we haven't already. But the Lord is faithful. And He will never failure. We are to be those who love the Lord. Listen, Grace Baptist, there are a lot of things that we may get wrong. We're not a perfect church. If you've been here any time, you know that. But we must not get this wrong. We must not fail in loving God. If we miss it on other things, we can't miss it here. This has to be our first priority, that we would gather and we would exalt the name of the Lord, that we would worship Him and magnify Him. We can't bow down to trends. We can't bow down to narratives. We can't bow down to the whims of man. We can't bow down to the latest church growth movement and trend void of biblical foundation. We only bow down to the Lord. Because we love Him, we worship Him. At the end of the day, if all else fails, if we miss everything else, let us not fail at loving God. Let us love the Lord. The second thing we think about, what does it mean to give Christ glory, to give glory to the Lord? We understand that that loving one another, we are to be those who love God, who worship Him supremely, and we are to be ones who love one another well. The reality of this, the foundation of this, the reason for this is that the one who loves God will love his people. It's just the truth. It's one of the evidences that John gives us when John writes his letter in 1 John. It's one of the evidence he lists is our, our love for God is seen in our love for people. Jesus taught in John 13, 34 to 35, you heard it earlier. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know 
that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then when John writes his letter in 1 John 3, 11, he says, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Then in 3.23, he says, and this is the commandment that we believe the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another. The people of God love God and love one another. There is a unique, a special, uh, a a covenant-based, a God-centered love that we should have for one another that's different than anything else. We don't have time to get into it, but it is a significant statement. When Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give you, a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Christ is the foundation, the precedent, the example. It informs how we love one another. And that's the calling that we have as a church body, as a church family, that we love one another as Christ loved us. I mean, consider how important this was to him. He nears the end of his life. He's in Jerusalem and he gathers with his disciples. What does he do? What does he teach them? Immediately he teaches them and calls them to love one another. In John 13, immediately love one another as I have loved you. In John 13, 35, as he's teaching them, what does he say is the mark by which people would know that we are his? Our love for one another. How important is it that we love one another? Listen, we take this seriously as a church. It's not something that we just go, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus said to love each other. That's good. And then we go about our other things. No, we take this command seriously. And it's our desire that that we would refuse to become just another church consumed with selfishness and power plays and backbiting and gossip and disunity and consumer Christians who just come in, listen to a sermon, like it or don't like it, vote, don't vote on whether that was a good one, that was a bad one, let's go and we're out of here and we'll go eat lunch. We don't desire to be that. We desire to be a church who loves one another, committed to genuine love for one another that is God-glorifying, Christ-exalting love. It's why we take our church covenant seriously. We stand and someone joins as a member. We ask them, have you read and do you agree to the church covenant? The reason we ask them that is because the pastor, as you know this, we meet with you to go over that and to make sure that it's something you understand. Why do we take it seriously? Because that is an expression of our love towards one another. And we ask you, we say, do you covenant with this family? Do, we, do you covenant with this individual? That's an important question. It's not one that you should flippantly go, yeah, yeah sure, all right, let's get out of here, I'm ready to eat. No. It's one that you look and you're saying, I am committing to love you with a covenant love. I'm committing to love you the way that Christ loves us. I'm committed to carrying that out. It's a commitment we make to one another. It's a commitment that I have to you that I don't have with everyone else. It's a commitment that governs the things I do because I have a special commitment to my church family. We take, take the covenant seriously. It's why we practice church discipline here. It's, it's why we are willing to love one another enough to say hard things. It's why the, 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 the controlling 
variable of our counseling and our interactions is not how you feel. The controlling variable in our counseling and interactions is the truth of God's word and what is most exalting and glorifying to God and good for his people and this local body. It's because we love you enough that we will look at you and we will call you to repent of something if you're in sin. And it's why I expect you to do the same for me. That if you ever see that and you see me walking into it, you don't sit back and go, oh, well, I can't say anything. He's a pastor. No, I expect I've made a covenant relationship with you, a covenant commitment with you, and I expect you to come before me and speak lovingly, truthfully into my life. It's a commitment we've made to one another. So how well are we doing this? How well are you doing this? How well are you showing genuine love towards the people of God at Grace Baptist? Are you doing that? If you say, yeah, I'm doing it because I come every Sunday morning and I'm here and I walk in and I sing and I listen attentively and then I walk out, I would push back on that. I would push back on that and say, you know what? Step back into the Word of God and look at what love is shown to be. I would push back and say, does 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7, does that describe your posture and your interactions with the people of God here at Grace? Does it describe how you interact? Does it describe how you love those here? Would this describe you that love is patient and kind? It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Does does that describe your interactions, your posture towards other believers here at Grace? Would you be characterized by what Paul instructs in Philippians 2, 3 to 4? Would you be characterized as one who does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counts others more significant than yourselves? He says, let each one of you not only, not look, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Am I characterized by a steadfast Christ-driven, biblical love for you? Am I living that out? Are you living that out? Those of you who are covenant members of grace, does that describe you? Is it what it looks like here? You see, from the beginning of grace, we were not a people who just gathered, came in, and left. That's not how we started, and that's not how we want to be, and that's not how we're going to continue into the future. We've been a church, and we will continue to be a church that is characterized by love for one another that is visibly seen in the way we care for one another, the way we step alongside and come alongside one another and suffer with each other and weep with each other and rejoice with each other and minister to each other and care for each other. It's who we are. And we have to resist this ever-present pull towards a low view of church membership, a low view of commitment to the body of Christ. There's this ever-present pull away from the body. I'm too busy. I just need to get going. I don't have time for that. I've got this going. There's this ever-present pull away from that. But God has called us to be a people who love one another. And to love one another as he loves us, sacrificially, 
steadfastly. Do we love one another in that way? Our final statement is reaching the world. We are those who love God, we love one another, and our longing and desire is to reach the world with the gospel. We fully understand and recognize that there are people throughout our own nation, our own county, and across the globe who are characterized by Psalm 115, 4 to 8. They worship idols. They worship stuff. They worship things. They bow down and submit their lives and their time and their pocketbooks to the things of the world, to stuff, to idols. They're lost. They're without hope. They have not received mercy. But we are a people we once had not received mercy, and we have received mercy. And the reason for that is that we might proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Is that we have a longing and a desire to make known the gospel, to make known the name of Jesus Christ. It has been said, missions exist because worship does not. It's tied into the first where we started loving God. The reason we want to reach the world is because not everyone knows about Christ and not everyone is worshiping Christ and not everyone loves him. And so we long to take the gospel to them. We long for the day in which people from every tribe, nation, and tongue exalt and praise the name of our Lord. But we know there are nations, we know there are tribes, there are tongues that have no knowledge of the Lord. We gather every day, we come, and, and some, of we, some of us said, which Bible am I taking today? When billions across the globe have no option. Millions of people have never even heard the name of Christ. But see, we gather, and we gather knowing that our God reigns in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. He is a sovereign, a mighty God who rules over all of history, rules over all of creation, and he has told us in Revelation 7 that he, there will be a day when a great multitude gathers that no one can number from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed, cl- lamb clothed in bright, white robes with palm branches in their hands. They're crying out with a loud voice. What are they crying out? They're crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we have confidence in that as the people of grace. We're going to go, we're going to carry the gospel as we have confidence that God is faithful to do what God said he will do. That God will carry out his plan. That he is God and there is no other. That there is no other name by which man must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. And we are those who have received mercy from him. And we have been called to go and make disciples and to proclaim the excellencies of his grace and his mercy that the nations might rejoice and worship him. See, from the beginning, Grace Baptist, we were those who looked out and we saw the fields were ripe. We saw them ready for harvest. And we didn't sit back and go, man, I hope someone else goes. But we have been a people who went. We've been a people who said, I will go. I'm going to give of my resources. You guys sitting in here today, multitudes, many of you have been going. You've been giving of yourselves. You've given up resources. You've given up time, energy, health even, to go and to make the gospel known. We have people from grace, literally around the globe, Why? Because they care about the nations. They want to see the name of the Lord exalted among the nations. And we will continue to be a church that is focused on reaching the nations for the sake of Christ. We want to see the gospel proclaimed. We're willing to make sacrifices to do it. And the reason that we are willing is because we believe the word of God. We believe that he is the holy God. 
who will punish sin. And that all those who are outside of Christ are objects of wrath, storing up wrath upon them daily. We believe that's real. We believe in a literal hell. We believe in a literal punishment and day of judgment. But we also believe and we know the testimony of Scripture that makes us wise into salvation, that there is salvation in the name of Christ, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess Jesus Christ with your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That salvation is found in Jesus Christ. We know that. We believe it. And we want to carry it and take it. That's who we are as a people. Now, we know the truth of Psalm 115, 12 to 13. We know the truth that God will indeed bless his people. We've experienced it. I mean, just consider the ways God's blessed us as a church. Just think about it for a moment. It's true. God is so, so very good. But you know what? Our prayer is the prayer of Psalm 67. In light of those blessings, we don't want to just sit back and go, oh yeah, bless us, Lord. Bless us. So we can just kick back, throw our feet up, And enjoy life. No, our longing, our desire, our prayer, Psalm 67 verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That, that, for this reason, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Our longing, has been and must continue to be the advance of the gospel among the nations. We cannot let up. We cannot grow weary. We cannot get lazy. We must press on. Of all days, is this difficult? Yes. Is our day getting challenging? Yes. Is it dark? Yes. Are there new challenges before the church? Yes. And for all reasons, that is reason and cause that we must be a light for the gospel. We must advance the gospel. We must take Christ to the nations beginning here. It's not just going around the globe. It's here. We begin by taking him to our workplace, to our schools, to our neighborhoods, to our families. We are a people set upon reaching the world for the glory of Christ that the nations might worship with us. Not worship us, but worship with us, lifting high the name of Christ. So church, I would call you to be who God's called us to be. Students to be disciples of Christ. To follow him faithfully wherever he leads. Wherever he leads, follow him. Stand for him, be salt and light for his glory. Live your life with courageous fear, courageous fear, courageous faith, without fear. Give whatever it takes, the cause of Christ. Love one another well. Renew that commitment, church, that you have for one another. 
if you've slipped into and been kind of lulled to sleep into this kind of in and out idea of church, just coming in here in a sermon and leaving, renew. Renew that commitment to love one another well. Live for His glory. Get engaged in missions. Go on a mission trip. Be intentional with your life. Take advantage of evenings that we set aside for reaching your neighbors with the gospel. Take advantage of outreach opportunities that we have. We must not let up. We must not cease to be who God has called us to be. We must be the people of God, declaring the excellencies of His mercy. Our worship team is going to come and close us out this morning. We're going to respond in song. We're going to respond in singing, O Church Arise. And that is our response. I want you to sing this as a response. If you can't sing this as a response and say, you know what, we are arising and we're going to go forth and exalt the name of the Lord, I want you to sing that as a response. It's a call. O Church Arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our Captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. O church, arise. O church, arise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning to worship you and to exalt you. We thank you, O God, for this body of believers. Thank you for the blessing it is to be numbered among those at this local church, Grace Baptist. And we confess, we know that we are not the only church, we're not the only great church, we're not the only good, sound church even in our community. God, there's other gatherings of believers gathering right now, worshiping you and exalting your name. And God, we thank you for them. And we ask you to bless them and work powerfully in their midst. But God, right now, we want to pray for our body here at Grace. God, I ask that we would ever be a body of believers who long to see your name glorified. That God, the desire of our heart would be not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. That as we live our lives, that it would ever be on our mind, not to me, O Lord, not to me, but to your name be the glory. So God, may we love you deeply. God, would you continue to work in us and increase our affections for you, Lord. And God, would you strengthen us by your grace to love one another well. Now give us patience with one another. God, help us to show kindness and gentleness towards one another. God, help us to, to bear with one another. To be quick to extend mercy and grace. Quick to forgive. And may we love in such a way that it would cover a multitude of sins. And God, I pray that we would never let up on pursuing and running after your call to take the gospel of the nations. May we be a church that gathers to worship you 
and goes out to make disciples. God, strengthen us. Deal with us. Guide us. Go before us. Bless us, O Lord, that the nations might rejoice and sing of your salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.